going well. Their leader at the time was shouting instructions, but making no attempt whatsoever to help his men. Asked why he wasn't helping his men by this rider that was riding by, the man responded with indignity, Sir, I'm a corporal. So the, the stranger apologized for asking such a ridiculous question, dismounted and proceeded to help the men who were building this defensive barrier. When the job was finished, he turned to the corporal and said, Mr. Corporal, the next time you have a job like this and not enough men to do it, go to your commander in chief and I will come and I will help you again. This is a famous story, of course, about George Washington. Our commander in chief, the Lord Jesus Christ, said during his time here on earth that he came to serve and not to be served, setting an example for all of us who follow in committed discipleship. Many believers have this backwards. They view service as something that somebody else does for them, not as something that they should be doing for someone else. And all of us, make no mistake, all of us are in Christian service in one form or another. It's not just the pastor, the associate pastor, or the seminary professor that's in full-time Christian service. All of us are in full-time Christian service. Some are just more public than others. But all of us have a ministry, and all of us have been called on to serve. And unlike this man who General Washington had to politely reprimand, King David wasn't that way at all. He had a different view of service. He considered his spiritual service for Yahweh to be of the utmost importance in his life. But he also understood that his sin had placed him in a position whereby his opportunity for spiritual service was in serious jeopardy. You see, David knew that restoration to fellowship with God is a prerequisite for true spiritual service. In Psalm 51, we find a prayer for forgiveness that's based upon the nature of the Lord and David's desire for continued fellowship with the Lord. We've outlined it this way. The confession proper, verses 1 through 6, we've had two lessons on that. Tonight we study the relationship between restoration to fellowship and spiritual service. That'll be verses 7 through 12. And then next week we'll finish up this study with the relationship between restoration and worship. And that's verses 13 through 19. Again, in verses 1 through 6, I invite you to turn to Psalm 51 if you haven't already. David says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, the only have I sinned, and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak, and blameless when thou dost judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part thou wilt make me no wisdom. By humbly confessing his sin to a loving God and a holy God, David is now acting wisely, something he hadn't been doing for quite some time. But he's now acting wisely and in accordance with the truth. He admits his sin. He doesn't try to hide it. 
He comes clean with God. He's transparent with God, even from the innermost parts of his being. He hides nothing. He not only confesses his sin, but he even admits his sinfulness and recognizes that God is a just God and that he judges fairly in whatever he does and that his character is not violated in any way when he sits in judgment upon David's sin. That's verses 1 through 6. Then in verses 7 through 12, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from thy presence, and do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. In these verses, David makes the point that believers need forgiveness and restoration of fellowship, because without it, we will not be sustained in our spiritual service to God. The spiritual service that we render for God, true spiritual service, is always empowered by God's Holy Spirit. David understood this. As we begin these verses, it would be helpful to remember that the sins that David committed were not eligible for a sin offering under the Mosaic Law. That sin offering was only for sins that were accidental, inadvertent, or done in ignorance. As far as the ritual cleansing was concerned, David would have had to wait to the Day of Atonement under the Mosaic Law to receive that ritual forgiveness when all sins were placed on the scapegoat and removed from the people. So under the Mosaic Law, until that day took place, there was no blood ritual that David could make. God didn't want it from him under these circumstances. But David could make a personal confession. God wanted a broken spirit and a contrite heart from him, as we're going to see in next week's study. But in verse 7, the text reads, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. We've already seen that David doesn't request partial cleansing. He wants complete cleansing so that he can be completely restored to fellowship, which means he's got to completely come clean with God. If he holds something back, he's not going to get complete cleansing. In fact, he won't get complete cleansing at all, because if you hold something back, you're not confessing your sins. The passage that we're much more familiar with in the New Testament, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we come completely clean with God, he cleanses us whiter than snow. David wanted that, and I know we want it too. Hyssop was a little brush of the oregano family that was used for sprinkling or splattering blood in the sanctuary. Here it's an allusion and an implied comparison with atoning ritual. So he's looking forward to that atoning ritual. By the way, I, I should have said this two weeks ago, and I should have said it last week. I think all of you know it, but just for the record, the cross hadn't occurred when Psalm 51 was written. 
So when we talk about God being justified on the basis of the finished work of Christ in, in forgiving David's sin, that is something that looks forward to the event. We look back to it. David looks forward to it. But it's still on the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross that God is free to forgive. But he's forgiving on the basis of something that's going to happen in the future. But back to David here. Even if he could make a sacrifice, no priest, and certainly not God, would sprinkle blood on him. David is using sanctuary imagery to say that he wants to be forgiven. He wants to be atoned for. He wants to be made pure. We often wonder what makes David so great. I wonder. Not just about David, but the other greats of the Bible. What makes him so great? Because here we have a man who committed adultery and committed murder. How could he be great in God's eyes? David was a man who understood that he had sinned. He confessed it completely, but he didn't allow it to ruin the rest of his life. Now, God's going to discipline him for a good ten years. He's going to be spanked severely. But David's viewpoint was ever forward, not backward. He looked every now and then in the rearview mirror. He had to. We all do in order to confess our sins. But if we're driving down the Gulf Freeway and our view is entirely in the rearview mirror, then we're going to crash because we have no vision about where we're going in the future. There's two ways to look at the spiritual life. One way is that we need to avoid all sin. And that's perfectly legitimate. There are passages in the Bible that tell us not to do certain things. Flee fornication, for example. It's a, it's a propositional revelation. You're not to do that. But there are also passages in the Bible that it's, are forward-looking. And the one I think about right now is it's command to love God. And Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, this is the way I look at it. There needs to be a balance between those two things. But some Christians are always and totally focused upon sin. That's all they're focused upon. And they wake up in the morning saying, I don't want to fornicate. I don't want to commit adultery. Lord, help me not to use the verbiage that I've been using lately. Help me, to be a, help me not to treat my wife so poorly. Help me not to treat my children so poorly. Do you see a commonality there? It's all what I'm not going to do. David wasn't that kind of person. Certainly he understood he wasn't supposed to do those kind of things. But I think one of the things that made him great was he was forward-looking. He loved Yahweh. Now, if he was truly loving Yahweh consistently, he would not have murdered. And he would not have committed adultery. But I hope you see what I'm talking about. That's why we go through the Bible verse by verse and not topically. Because if we go verse by verse, we'll come across those verses and say, don't do this and don't do that. But we're also going to come across, I believe, a greater number of verses that motivate us to be forward-looking and to look positively at the situation. Now, there are people that only preach, don't do these things. And we would call them legalists. At least that's how, they, how it works out. Now, technically, legalism is calling upon people not to engage in behavior, and the Bible says nothing about it. But they, they get the brand legalist anyway. Whether it's fair or not, that's the brand of it. We also have people that never mention sin, that never talk about, never even use the word. They're so forward-looking that the word sin or any particular sin is never mentioned in any of their sermons. And that's wrong, too. So I'm not talking about that. But I am talking about a balance between the two. That's one of the things that made David as great as he was, is he had that balance. His first and foremost objective was to love God. He was forward-thinking. And when he messed up by not loving God and sinning, he confessed that sin, God wiped him as clean as snow, and then he kept moving. All of us in this room have committed some sins 
that have probably shocked even ourselves, and we wonder why God keeps us alive. Now, don't look at me like you've never committed something like that. <laughs> most, of it, let me back up. most of us in this room have. Listen, if you confess that sin, and you're wiped clean, and God still has you on this planet, he has you on this planet for a reason, your life is not over, otherwise he would have taken you out under what John calls the sin that leads to death. And it'd be over with for you. Sin doesn't have to stop your Christian experience. It does a lot of times, but it doesn't have to. And David kept moving. That's a key. I think that's one of the keys to David's greatness. So he asked, again, I hope you see the passion of this psalm. Passion is all over this psalm. He desperately wants to move forward with his life because he loves God and he doesn't want this to interrupt that personal relationship that he has with his creator. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. This is a reference to the atoning ritual. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. The whiteness of snow gives an impression of purity. For those who have lived their entire life along the Gulf Coast, this might not be the best teaching metaphor. But for those who have spent time, for example, in the Rocky Mountains or in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Buffalo, New York, places where you do see snow quite a bit, you'll know that there are very few things, at least in my view, there are very few things as a mountain meadow that is covered by fresh snow. It's just pristine. It's clean. Uh, I'm not talking about snowfalls in New York City where the snow falls and then cars run through the snow and it's all muddy and gushy. It's just not fun at all when that happens. I'm talking about pristine country snowfalls where nothing has is, nothing is interrupted it. David wants to be that clean. He wants to be that pristine. Then he says in verse 8, Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, he says in verse 9, and blot out all my iniquities. Again, he wants complete cleansing. This is poetry. That's why this same concept is repeated over and over the joy and gladness that he mentions here most likely refers to the praises that were offered in the tabernacle. But in his spiritual condition, he couldn't enter the tabernacle and appropriately worship. Or if he did, it certainly wouldn't be meaningful or enjoyable in any way. This may be hitting too close to home, but... Have you ever found yourself just totally miserable in a worship service? I'm not talking about here necessarily, but in any worship service. Just totally miserable. Well, there's a possibility that it's the fault of the worship service. That's true. But there's a better probability that the fault lies within the heart of the worshiper. If you're just totally miserable, if you can't wait to leave, if you're sorry that you came, it could be that the sermon's just horrible. I mean, that happens. It could be the music is terrible. That happens. But it's more likely that there's something wrong in our own hearts. There's something wrong with us when we find worship to be a bore. I don't know about you, but when I first heard long, long, long time ago that eternity would be one constant worship service, this is a long, long time ago. I'm thinking, that's got to be wrong. It's just, that cannot be right. You know, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears. But you know what? When we leave this old sin nature behind, and when we're totally focused upon our Creator, there's nothing that brings us more joy and more contentment 
than when we're totally and completely focused on the one who created us. So yes, worship in eternity is it's not going to be like worship now. First of all, it's going to be a perfect worship service. And second of all, we're going to be beings that ha- don't have or that, are, that are not encumbered by an oaken nature. So David can't have this joy and gladness in his current state because he's out of fellowship with God. A paraphrase of this verse might go something like this. Tell me I am forgiven so that I may enter into the tabernacle again where I can enjoy and hear the joy and gladness that takes place. Then he mentions this thing about his bones. This is interesting. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. We're never told of any of David's bones being broken. I assume that they haven't been, and I assume that that means that this refers to his spirit being broken. It's a metaphor. Or crushed is another way to translate that. It's an implied comparison, comparing the crushing of a physical object to his spiritual depression. What David is saying, and he's admitting, I haven't really been happy for a while. I haven't been content for a while. And he might have said, it's been a year since I've been happy. Really happy and content. He'd been depressed. And it's God's Holy Spirit that has caused this depression. Because God the Holy Spirit loves you. He's not going to let you be happy and joyful and truly content if you're consistently walking out of fellowship with Him. It doesn't work that way. So rather than blaming everything on the worship leader or the pastor or the church service or the guy on television not being on today or the radio not coming through like I want it to or that guy's too old or that guy's too young or I don't like that guy's black tee, I don't like that guy's suit, maybe something's wrong with us. At least that's what David's saying here. When we're unhappy in worship, we have to look at ourselves first. And then we can be critical of the service itself. But David wants to praise God. He doesn't want God to take notice of his sin. In other words, he doesn't want God to hold his sin against him. He doesn't want justice. He wants mercy. He says in verse 10, something that blows me away. It's a great challenge for all of us. And tonight, this might be the greatest challenge you have in this passage. He says in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You know what David's saying here? He's praying that God would clean out from his soul the desire to even commit that kind of sin again. Now that takes spiritual courage. Because I want us to be honest and frank with each other tonight. At least I will present this. You can play poker and act like it doesn't affect you at all. But there are certain sins that we commit that we kind of like. There are certain sins that we commit that we kind of enjoy. And while we'll go to, we'll, we'll commit that sin and then we realize that it's a sin and we confess that sin, deep down, we know good and well next time the opportunity comes up, we're probably going to do it again. Because you know what? Because that's just who we are. Isn't it? That's just who I am. You know, I'm a sinner. That's why I sin. I'm just a sinner. I'm sin- that's just my area of weakness. You have to forgive. That's just my area of weakness. That's not your area of weakness. That's why you don't do that. But that's just my area of weakness. And David's saying no to that. He said, Lord, I want a clean heart within me. 
And that clean heart has got to be created. And that clean heart is not going to be a reality until God the Holy Spirit purges even the desire to commit those sins from us. That's not going to be done in perfection. We're not going to be purged completely from the desire until the day we die. But this is a bold prayer, I hope you would agree. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, I think helps shed a little light on this passage. Proverbs 28, verse 13 reads this way. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. I want to say that one again because I know you didn't have time to turn there. But he's, the writer of the Proverbs says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Now that's not talking about physical or monetary prosperity. You ever hear that on television? Change the station. Because that's not what this is talking about. It's talking about spiritual prosperity. It almost sounds like David might have had an influence on whoever wrote this. I'm not sure. He who conceals his transgressions. David's not doing that. I'm becoming clean with you, God. There's no prosperity as we hide our sin within us and refuse to come clean with it. But it's the second one, the second line that I want to draw your attention to. He who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Now that word compassion is the same word, racham, that we had in Psalm 51, verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion, Blot out my transgressions. Same word here in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. If we'll confess it, and if we'll forsake it, then we're going to find compassion. The same thing David wanted in Psalm 51. This is not adding a separate and necessary condition to the restoration of fellowship, I don't believe. If we confess our sins, he is going to restore us to fellowship. But unless we turn away from that sin, our stay in fellowship is going to be really, really short. And the confession is going to be effectively worthless if we don't turn away from it. So we confess our sin to be restored to fellowship. We turn away from it to remain in fellowship. Restoration of fellowship without remaining in fellowship is not going to do us all very much good. So this is the greatness of David. David knew that there was something wrong in his heart. He was making terrible judgments, terrible choices. And so he prays for God to change that. And to prevent him from doing such things again. He doesn't make excuses. The biggest excuse is, oh Lord, you, you made me this way. You gave me these hormones. You made her a beautiful woman. It's not my fault. That's blaming God for our sin. We need to own up to it ourselves. And David did that. He doesn't just say, well listen, that just happened to be my area of weakness. Lord, you knew that all the way back. <laughs> It's been, been recorded from 1 Samuel on that I've got this problem with women. He doesn't use it as, a, as an excuse. He wants spiritual transformation. Here's a question we need to ask ourselves. When we confess our sins, do we really want spiritual transformation? Or has it become a ritual that we're doing by rote because it's something we just know we're supposed to do but it has no meaning whatsoever? Is it a legal maneuver on your part, on our part? Well, I confess that you've got to forgive me. Consider the attitude that would go behind that kind of confession. Do we really desire to forsake the sin or the sinful pattern? Do we really want that out of our lives? Or do we kind of enjoy it a little bit? We know it's wrong, but golly, I do get a little bit of enjoyment out of it. 
if we desire compassion from God, and by the way, that word rakam is that term we talked about last time. It is a maternal term. It refers to a mother loving her child. Today I was getting ready for this lesson tonight. I showered and was ready to go. I was getting my shirt out of the closet. And my little grandson, who I was allegedly babysitting at the time, uh, somehow had, had come up right behind me. And when I turned around, I'm... 195, or a little bit more than that, <laughs> something like that. And he's probably not, but I don't know, 25 pounds at the most. I don't know what he weighs. But I overpowered him fairly significantly, and he went flying. I mean, just went flying. <laughs> That's not funny. But he, he, had a, he had a little bottle with him, and the bottle went flying too. And boy, he was upset with his pot. He, it just stunned him that I would do that. He had no idea that it was an accident. But I picked him up and I thought of this word rakam, believe it or not. I, th- I thought of this word rakam as I just held him in my arms. I said, no, no, that is an accident. Son. I would never, ever do that to you on purpose. I love you. It took a little while, but he finally got the point. And then I gave him a bottle with chocolate milk in it. And, he, <laughs> and he forgave chocolate for me. You've got to pull out everything you can when, when the Mom and Grandma were not home. But I understood that word. It's, it's a tender word, Rakam, compassion. It's just, it's holding that little child in your arm, your own child, your grandchild, whoever it may be, with the, the kind of love that a grandparent can have or a parent can have toward that little child. It's really a maternal term, although I think fathers can have it too. If you desire that kind of compassion from your father, confess it and forsake it. Move on. Not in the power of your own flesh, but the power of the Word of God by means of the Holy Spirit. He who confesses and forsakes will find Akam, will find compassion. Go back to Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart. The word heart here refers to the seat of the will within the human spirit. David wants his innermost being renovated. He wants a complete cleaning, not just a dusting. The verb here, create, is the well-known Hebrew verb, bara. We studied it in Genesis. Bara is always a work of God. It doesn't necessarily mean to create something out of nothing. That probably is going too far with what the word bara means. But bara is always a work of God. Human beings don't bara anything. It's God creating something fresh and something new. So when David says, bara in me a clean heart, it's a prayer for spiritual renewal, a change of heart attitude, and a reformation of the way that his very will functions. Again, this is, a, this is a little uncomfortable. When we confess our sins, do we really desire a spiritual transformation within us? Or do we want to hold on to a little bit of it? That's for each of us to answer and you'll get an opportunity to answer it for yourself next time you go to God's confession. Think about it. Next time you go to a confession, no matter what the confession may be, don't cast me away from thy presence and do not take the Holy Spirit from me. It says in verse 11, the issue here concerns the taking away of the Holy Spirit and the issue of spiritual service. If you'll recall, when we started this lesson, we said these verses are about restoration of fellowship and spiritual service. Now, you may have looked through here and say, I can't find where spiritual service is really mentioned at all in these verses, but it is. 
First of all, I think about the Holy Spirit. In this dispensation, the dispensation of the church, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a permanent thing. In the Mosaic Age, the Holy Spirit came upon leaders and administrators to enable them to do their work. But it was a temporary indwelling for a particular task. We read how the Holy Spirit would come upon someone and then leave him. This is what happened to King Saul. Now, this is David's context. For us, that may be so long ago that it wouldn't be our context. We just see this in the context of Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. But David has more on his mind. David's spiritual service is that he is the king of Israel. That's how he is serving God and has been for quite some time, for several decades by now. Probably for close to three decades, at least serving Judah. Some of us might think that David is praying here, don't take your Holy Spirit away from me like you did Saul, because I want to remain the king and have this palace and everybody look up to me, have everybody respect me. This is going to be embarrassing. That's not, I don't believe, what he's praying at all. I don't think for a minute that's what he's praying. He didn't want to be king to build himself up. I really, for the life of me, believe that David wanted to be king to build up Yahweh. And this sin had the potential for that all going away. You remember, David saw this with Saul. When Saul sinned, and I might propose to you that on some level, Saul's sin might not have been as egregious as David's sin. You can make a case that way. I mean, you can also make a case the other way, too, but it's a, it's, it's a good point of discussion anyway. And Saul had the Holy Spirit taken away from him, and because his heart was rebellious, died the sin that leads to death. I think that's clear from the way that Saul died. He consulted a witch, an indoor, a medium, an indoor. And once he went down, he really went down. And David's looking at this whole thing and thinking, oh, my. What did I just do? The stuff that I just did could certainly be comparable to the stuff that Saul did when the Holy Spirit was removed from him. When the Holy Spirit was removed, the kingship was removed from him. And David said, oh, I don't want that. So he says, don't cast me away from thy presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He's saying, don't remove my opportunity for spiritual service. It would have been devastating to David. David was a king. He was not a member of the priesthood. He was of the tribe of Judah. There are certain things that believers can do who are in certain positions in a local church, for example, that would disqualify them from doing that particular function anymore. Had David been a pastor in the New Testament church, he would have been disqualified because he certainly would, be a, would not be above reproach. He wouldn't be the man of one woman. And at least those two, I hope you agree. They would have disqualified him from occupying the office of elder, bishop, pastor. And I believe those are all one concept in the New Testament. David was a king, though. It would not have necessarily disqualified him because of a list of qualifications we have like in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. But he had violated the Mosaic Law and should have been under death penalty. So he had every reason to be scared, frightened to death that God was going to not just discipline him, but part of the discipline would be to remove the opportunity that he had for future spiritual service. And that frightened him to death because that was his life. 
from the time he's a little kid, looking out at those stars, writing, writing things like, who am I? What is man that thou art mindful of him? In view of God's creation, when he stands out as a late teen, and said, who is that uncircumcised Philistine that taunts the armies of the living God? He wasn't doing that for himself. He was doing it because that Philistine, Goliath, was insulting the God that he worshipped. And now it looks like there's a very real possibility that all that's over with for David. But we know it's not. Because God answers this prayer in the affirmative. So this is where the spiritual service comes in. While the Christian should not pray this specific prayer, the desire behind the prayer can be prayed. David deeply desired to continue as king so that he could serve God. This is not selfishness. This is service. So when David prays, don't take your spirit from me, he is in essence praying, don't remove me from your service. Don't set me aside, Lord. Don't put me on the shelf. Give me another chance. Give me another opportunity. We can pray something like that. This is where we find ourselves in that particular position. I'm not saying you can be a pastor and commit murder and then pray, oh, Lord, keep me in the pulpit. When you go into pastoral ministry, you should at least have enough theological education to know what the boundaries are. You need to be a big boy about it. And if you violate those boundaries, there still may be other things that you can do in ministry, but pastoral ministry is not one of them. That's not God's lack of forgiveness. That's the rules. That's what he set up. It doesn't mean your life's over. I know people that have messed up in ministry. I don't know anybody that's murdered. I did hear of one. But he committed suicide right after he murdered two people in Congress. Tragic, tragic. But I do know men that have failed in other areas that have disqualified them. Their life's not over. They do other things. But that particular aspect's over. So I'm not saying that a New Testament pastor could say, don't remove me from this aspect of spiritual service. It's probably going to happen. But David could pray this for two reasons. One, it's very possible that the Holy Spirit was going to be taken from him. Secondly, if the Holy Spirit's taken from him, the kingship's taken from him, just like Saul, David doesn't want that. That's where the spiritual service comes in, if you're wondering. We don't pray, take your take not your Holy Spirit from me. That's a, a wasted prayer for the New Testament believer. But the, the desire behind that petition can be prayed. And then finally, in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of thy salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Because of his sin and the resultant loss of fellowship, David had also lost the joy that should be a part of every believer's life. How sad to possess something as wonderful as eternal life and not enjoy it. All of us daydream from time to time. Different people have different daydreams, but every now and then I think Christians will daydream, well, what would I do if I had a billion dollars? Boy, I'd be happy for that. I've only met a couple people that had a billion dollars. And i got to tell you, at least that night, they weren't happy at all. But we've got something that's a lot more than a billion dollars. We have eternal life. And that should put us in a position to where we are jazzed all the time. In spite of suffering. Suffering's part of the deal, too. I mean, there should be such a level of contentment in our lives that we don't find that sometimes. 
And I wonder if the reason we don't find this is because even though we have eternal life, we've been walking out of fellowship for so long, we haven't come clean with God, we haven't become transparent with Him. I'm talking about genuinely transparent. I'm not talking about other people. I had a question that came in this week, I guess over one of these lessons. And the, the question related to coming completely transparent with other people, like in a small group. And they wanted to know if that was part of this passage. I said, no, there's no group in this passage. This is David and God. That's who you have to come clean with at the same time. Now, we still have the James 5 passage, that if I have injured you, I have a responsibility to go to you and come clean with you and apologize. So listen, I, I'm sorry about that. What I did was wrong. Not to come to you and make excuses that that's just the way I am. You know, it's the same kind of concept. But first and foremost, this coming clean, this transparency is before God because I've led small groups. And I'm going to tell you right now, nobody comes clean in those small groups. Nobody does. Everybody holds something back because if we all came clean in a small group, nobody would ever want to be around us ever again. I'm sorry they wouldn't if we came really, really clean. The only one we can come really, really clean with is God. And then if we've injured somebody in a small group, then we come, or husband or wife or kids, then we come clean with them too on that particular issue. Everything else I kind of keep to myself and God. It's not their business. All it's going to do is cause them to sin too. So the transparency first needs to be toward God. And then toward other people to the degree that it's necessary for that particular situation. David had lost his fellowship and he'd lost his joy. And he hadn't been happy for a while and he wanted it back. He had eternal life. He had salvation, but he wasn't enjoying it. And then finally, David asked once again for spiritual transformation. David has free will in the sense that he can choose for or against God. He's, this passage is not talking about that. But did you know that you can pray that God would transform even your will? He can transform that, transform the desire behind your will. And that's what David does here. Verses 6 through 13, we see that effective service for our Lord is empowered by God himself. When we're living out of fellowship with God because of unconfessed sin in the life, the Holy Spirit's work in the life of the believer is suppressed. We're called upon to serve our Lord with the time that we have here on earth after we're saved. Let us not hinder our spiritual service by living out of fellowship, by failing to come clean with God when we need to come clean with Him. And let us not waste time in this life and fail to glorify God in this body that He gave us. David knew that restoration of fellowship with God is a prerequisite for spiritual service.